Welcome to Australia's Future with Tony Abbott. I'm Daniel Wilde from the Institute of Public Affairs. Australia is facing its most significant challenges since World War II. Geopolitical tensions are increasing. Cultural self-confidence is in decline. The values which define us, freedom, democracy, egalitarianism and sacrifice are being put to the test. Over this special podcast series, Tony and I discuss how Australia can survive and flourish in the decades ahead. Hello, Tony, and g'day to all of our listeners. It's wonderful to be with you for another episode of Australia's Future with Tony Abbott. Much to talk about, as always. Uh, We'll be talking about the voice to Parliament and the inequitable arrangements that are being set up by government. Uh, Andrew Hastie's comments on defence and the need for a patriotic national culture. And Australia's continuing energy malaise and Labor's foreshadowing of significant increases to electricity prices. Tony, good to be with you as always. Let's kick off with the voice to Parliament. Uh, One of the more interesting and to me concerning developments over the last week or so has been in the government's budget where they have included on page 17 of budget paper number two an announcement that was buried away in there that a group called Australians for Indigenous Constitutional Recognition, which is a body campaigning for the yes vote at the uh, forthcoming referendum, would be granted uh, deductible gift recipient status, which means that donations can be made and they're tax deductible. Yet no similar concessions were made uh, to the no case. To me, this is further evidence of the deck being stacked against those who don't want racial division in our constitution. Tony, I'd like to hear your thoughts. Thanks, Dan. Look, uh, as our listeners know, I think that this voice is a thoroughly bad idea. It's wrong in principle and it will be bad in practice. It will give about 4% of the population what amounts to an effective veto uh, over government actions on behalf of 100% of the population. And uh, I just think this is uh, a giant step down the path towards uh, New Zealand-style co-governance and I can't think of anything that is more likely to divide our country and further gum up what is already, uh, frankly, a pretty clogged up system of government. Mm. So so it's a a seriously bad idea. Um, Not that constitutional recognition itself is wrong. Um, I'd be very happy to see uh, changes to the preamble of the Constitution, but uh, but this is the worst possible way uh, to recognise Indigenous people in the Constitution. It's the worst possible way uh, to bring about the genuine reconciliation that should be uh, between uh, the first Australians and the rest of us. Hmm. Now, yes, uh, in the budget, not only was there uh, uh, 50-odd million for the Electoral Commission to start preparing for a referendum, uh, but there was monies to various Indigenous groups that will advise and, I dare say, advocate on behalf uh, of The Voice. And yes, there's a tax deductibility mm. uh, for bodies that are campaigning for Indigenous constitutional recognition. Now, um, basically, that means that if you're for The Voice, uh, you get subsidised by the taxpayer uh, through tax deductibility. Uh, no such... Uh, equivalence or balance exists towards uh, entities that might be established to to campaign against The Voice. Um, It's a sign that the government is 
determined to get this through and is quite prepared to dispense with ordinary concepts of fairness in order to do so. And I think we've got to face the fact, Dan, that uh, there is going to be a massive weight of propaganda in favour of this voice. Uh, there will be uh, um, government funding, uh, one way or another, directed uh, towards uh, uh, the Yes campaign. Uh, we can already see the battalions of woke public companies lining up uh, to support uh, the Yes campaign. I have absolutely no doubt that the ABC will be uh, full throttle in favour of it. Uh, so if we are to stop this uh, extraordinary change to the way we are governed, uh, it really is going to have to be a people's campaign. It really is going to have to be a grassroots campaign. And uh, the point I make is that I'm more than happy to be uh, very heavily involved in it because much as I want to see uh, the right thing done by Indigenous Australians and much as I'm happy enough to see the truth about our country, that we have an Indigenous heritage, a British foundation and an immigrant character uh, properly acknowledged in our constitution, this is the wrong way to do it. It will divide us by race. It will make our system of government very substantially worse. Let's not do it, but I've got to say, the job will be ahead of us. The last referendum we had was the Republic referendum in 1999, and that was handled in a very different way. We had John Howard leading the coalition government, and John Howard was a staunch monarchist, but he was fair-minded. He understood that a lot of Australians had come to favour the idea of a republic and were open to it. He provided, well, he ensured that there was equal funding provided to both sides. And I just want to read out a quote. This is actually from 1995, so when he was still opposition leader. And this is what Tony said, this is what John Howard said about the, Repub the forthcoming Republic um, debate. All Australians should have an equal say in our future and in our country's future. This debate about the Republic is not about who is the better Australian. There are decent, passionate, loyal Australians on both sides of the argument, end quote. Contrast that to what's happening now, and we can see a very stark difference. Tony, you were around in, in 1999. You were in Parliament. You were a strong advocate of the monarchy. You were very involved in the debate. Can you help us understand what the thinking was at the time by Howard and, and the government? Well, I can remember that time pretty well, and as you say, was very heavily involved in it all. Um, John Howard was a very fair-minded bloke. Uh, he didn't think that just because he supported the Crown our Constitution, uh, the debate should be rigged one way. Um, he would have preferred, I suspect, uh, that this matter had never come up. Uh, and he would have preferred uh, not to have had a constitutional convention and not ultimately to have had a referendum. But he accepted that there was a fair groundswell at that time, which had been pushed on by the former Keating government. There was a fair groundswell at that time, including from some in the Liberal Party, uh, for us to uh, consider change. So uh, he made it as fair as possible. He's basically said to the Republicans, uh, the mainstream Republicans, look, uh, what is the proposal that you would like to see put forward? Um, how do you think it should be done? Uh, he facilitated the passage through the Parliament of the relevant referendum uh, act, mm -hmm. and uh, and then he equally funded. I think it was ten million dollars uh, to each side, 
equally funded both sides of the argument, and while he certainly from time to time intervened to make his position clear, he allowed uh, members of the then government who didn't share his view, and at that time Peter Costello was uh, of a different mind, uh, he, he allowed them to say their piece. So look, it couldn't have been done more fairly. Um, I, I should add that uh, back then, um, just about every paper was campaigning for a republic. The ABC were vociferous in favour of a republic. Uh, but at that time, what was, <laughs> barring the $10 million from the Commonwealth government, very much a grassroots campaign, uh, did ultimately secure 55% to keep the constitution that we've got, as opposed to just 45% for change. And given that the 90s was not a great decade for the royal family, um, uh, I think that was a that was a pretty pretty amazing result. Now, uh, the success of the anti-republican campaign should give all of us who don't like this voice heart, uh, because even if you are arrayed against big business, uh, woke billionaires, uh, the ABC and the federal government, uh, if you've got a good case, uh, you can still get through to the general public, mm. and in the end. Um, the voters don't usually get it wrong and I think that the average Australian voter knows that our constitution has served us well uh, and there's almost nothing wrong with our country that requires changing the constitution to fix and I think they'll be deeply reluctant to do this. Uh, as I say, uh, uh, they won't want uh, our country officially divided by race. They won't want and let's hearken back to that phrase of Howard's that mm. you've just read, they won't want some Australians to have more of a say in our future than the rest of us. Mm. And that's inherent in this voice because it means that uh, Australians whose ancestry in this place goes back tens of thousands of years will have more of a say over our future, two votes in fact, once for the parliament and twice for the voice, uh, in a way that those of us whose ancestry uh, uh, is post-1788 uh, won't have. Now, mm. now I think the public will ultimately be alive to this, um, but at the moment there's no doubt which way the government wants it to go. It's a good point, and I want to return to, to the point about everyone having, having an equal say in a moment. But just on the inequitable funding and the broader dynamic that you've identified with the major institutions supporting the voice. I think one thing with the with the Republic referendum was, yes, there were people on the Republic side who lost, who were very upset about it, but I can't really remember people feeling that it was unfair, that everybody had a say, they voted, they trusted the integrity of the process, and they said, well, at the end of the day, we had a good go at it, maybe we'll have another go in years to come, but, you know, this is life in a democracy. And we move on. My concern is that if there is a number, a significant number of Australians who go, look, this whole thing is a bit dodgy. You know, why are they giving money to this side and not that side? Why are the forces of our institutions arrayed on one way against the other? My concern is that if a yes vote does get up, which I hope it doesn't and I don't think it will, but if it does get up, you might have a lot of people feeling, well, this has been a dodgy setup from the start. We haven't had a fair go, and they might not accept the legitimacy of the whole process. Um, do you share those concerns, or am I sort of overreaching a bit? I, I suspect that might be a little over-egging the pudding, Dan. Uh, 
let, let's, let's see. Uh, uh, I don't have a great deal of confidence uh, that the government will approach this uh, in, a, in a broad-minded way, mm. uh, but I do have considerable confidence in the common sense of the Australian people. Uh, I think if there is uh, any sense that the government is being a little bit underhand or is uh, uh, overtly favouring one side of the debate in a way that's unfair... I think that uh, that will help uh, to bring about uh, a no vote when it comes to the to the question. Uh, just returning to the point I made a, a moment ago about everyone having an equal say. One part about this I've been thinking about is if say you're a new migrant, you say you've you know maybe one or five or ten years you've been in Australia. I sort of wonder what do they make of this uh, to the extent that they're aware of the voice and what it means. I think that. For what it's worth, I, I reckon that it's a message that you're at the back of the queue. So we've had the Australians that were here first and they get extra say. So does that mean if you're here last, you get a diminished say? Um, do you have any sort of thoughts about what, what this means for recent I, migrants? I, I, I think that is a risk. Um, I, I, I mean, there's a, there's a lot that I find a little disturbing at the moment uh, in in this whole... Uh, issue of how we appropriately approach uh, um, Indigenous Australia and uh, all of the issues uh, post-1788. I mean, you know, right now uh, it's becoming commonplace to fly the Indigenous flag that represents 4% of us uh, co-equally with the Australian flag that represents 100% of us. Uh, now, uh, I, I, I find that... Uh, not quite right. Mm-hmm. Um, we have one national flag, and uh, that should always have the place of honour, regardless of any other flags that might be flown, whether it's a state flag, an armed forces flag, or indeed the indigenous flag. Um, all these acknowledgements of country. Well, sure, uh, once upon a time it may have been Wiradjuri country or uh, Gadigal country or uh, Aranta country or whatever it might be. But really, it belongs to all of us now. And this uh, ringing declaration that you have so often, that it uh, always was, always is, and always will be, uh, Wiradjuri or uh, Gadigal or Aranda country, I, uh, I think it must uh, leave people who think about it uh, a little bit uneasy because in the end, we're all Australians, we're all equal, um, whether you... Whether your ancestors walked here from uh, across a land bridge uh, tens of thousands of years ago, or whether you're the person who got off the last plane, um, once you're an Australian citizen, you are absolutely equal with everyone else. Uh, you've got equal rights, you've got equal responsibilities, you've got an equal stake uh, in our future, and frankly, you have an equal claim on our past. Mm. And uh, uh, the Indigenous history of this country doesn't just belong to Indigenous people, uh, it belongs to all of us. Um, uh, the British prehistory of this country uh, doesn't just belong uh, to Anglo-Australians, it belongs to all of us because when the first fleet came ashore uh, in 1788, it brought a whole uh, series of things, nearly all good things with it, the rule of law, uh, the mother of parliaments, um, concepts of equality before the law, um, a growing sense of the equality 
of man. I mean, this was the uh, this was the Britain of the Enlightenment, which launched the first fleet, uh, uh, and uh, and and which uh, did uh, ultimately settle the continent. So, 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 we all have a stake in all of these things, and this idea that some are more equal than others based on length of tenure in Australia, again, it, it should make us quite uneasy. It should make us uneasy. And this sort of parlays into the next topic, which is to do with our national defence and our patriotism, because if you're diminished or you feel diminished as an Australian, then you're probably less likely to want to stand up for Australia should that need arise. And that goes to comments that uh, the Shadow Defence Minister uh, Andrew Hasty made uh, yesterday in the Australian, and he made a couple of important observations that I'd like to get your your thoughts on. And um, the key point that I think Andrew Hasty made, talking in the context of our uh, deterrence and our defence capabilities, is actually our our culture. And he said, uh, the key to our future defence is appealing to Generation Z and the younger Generation Alpha, uh, which we need to recruit uh, and develop a message that appeals to young hearts and minds searching for purpose, emphasising the service ethos is critical, duty, honour and country. Uh, I think those are important observations about the willingness and desire of young Australians to want to defend our nation and to feel that, to feel that there is something worth defending. I think that's the key, one of the key issues we face, Tony. Well, I certainly agree with you there, Dan. Uh, Look, uh, successive generations of Australians uh, have uh, fought for our country, uh, for our allies, for our values, for our interests, and uh, let's hope uh, we don't have to do it again, but it would be an unusual future if uh, it was entirely free Hmm. of the kind of aggression between nations which uh, has marked uh, human history up until this point. Now, Yes, uh, the consequences of war are even more horrific today than they were in the past. But um, a country which is unwilling to defend itself is a country which uh, inevitably is basically going to have to ultimately concede uh, whatever an aggressor wants. So we have to accept, uh, if we want to remain a free and independent country, uh, that we uh, have got to be ready at any time to defend ourselves against potential aggressors. And what we've seen in uh, Eastern Europe uh, and what we are seeing across the Taiwan Straits uh, is, uh, is, is proof, if anyone needed, that there are still uh, aggressive countries that don't like the way the world is, mm. uh, who feel they've been ripped off um, and, uh, and who are prepared to use force uh, with extreme brutality uh, to bring about their objectives. So, so yes, we have to be ready to defend ourselves, but implicit in that is a belief that we are worth defending. Yep. And again, this is one of the reasons why uh, I think we should be uneasy uh, about not giving the national f- flag a place of honour, why we should be uneasy uh, about acknowledgements of country that suggest that some of us are more equal than others. Uh, I think we should be uneasy uh, about suggestions that there is some fundamental illegitimacy uh, as opposed to some episodes in our past uh, of which uh, uh, we uh, aren't particularly proud. Uh, 
So, so I think we have to be very careful about 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 the mindset that we create, um, and then, of course, uh, we have to actually get serious about the nuts and bolts uh, of our of our military preparedness. And mm-hmm. uh, this is where uh, we've got some very very big problems. Look, essentially, uh, we have uh, complacently assumed that in any serious crisis, uh, someone else would help to keep us safe, whether that was Britain uh, for the first 150 years of our national existence uh, or more recently the United States. Now, I have no doubt that in any major crisis we would have allies, but you can never ask another country to do more for you than you're prepared to do for yourself. Now, to our great credit, particularly in World War I, uh, the Australian nation rose magnificently to the cause of freedom. And in World War II, uh, while uh, probably uh, 50% of the almost a million Australians in uniform uh, at the time uh, of the close of the Second World War didn't go overseas, we certainly, uh, by the middle of the Second World War, had had massively mobilised our country uh, for... Uh, for our own defence and for the advancement of freedom elsewhere. Um, I hope that nothing like that is ever necessary, but the best way to keep the peace is to raise the cost to others of any aggression. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think Andrew Hastie is completely correct but it's one thing to say that more needs to be done in a whole host of areas. It's another thing to actually spell out what that is. And that's really, I think, our challenge. It's to work out what we can do now, uh, not what we might do in a decade or two decades' time. Now, here in Australia, we're building these offshore patrol vessels. So they're almost 2,000 tonnes. They're the size of a small frigate. As things stand, they're almost completely unarmed. Uh, we need to dramatically accelerate the build of these offshore patrol vessels and we need to significantly up-arm them. Mm. Uh, And that's something that we can start doing now. We don't need to wait. We can do that immediately. Uh, Our small but capable armed forces um, could uh, be placed where they might be more useful um, and uh, send a stronger signal to potential adversaries uh, uh, the Morrison government concluded uh, a reciprocal access treaty, um, which I'd started to negotiate with Japan. Uh, there's been some talk that uh, there'll be more Japanese uh, ships and planes and uh, armed personnel participating in exercises in Australia. Why don't we put more Australian ships and planes uh, rotating through Japan? I think a a substantial rotation of Australian ships and planes through Japan would send a very strong signal uh, to potential aggressors uh, in East Asia. Uh, And look, uh, I don't like governments which uh, think that the answer to every problem is spending more money um, because uh, uh, in all fields of government, it is easier to spend money than to make a difference. But nevertheless... We are going to have to spend more on defence. 
my government raised it to 2% of GDP. Mm-hmm. I think we are going to have to raise it quite rapidly to 3% of GDP. That would still be less than a third of what we spent on health. Mm. It would still be only a half of what we spent on education. And in the end, uh, the defence of the realm is the most important task of government. Mm. It is the sine qua non. It is the one essential thing that only government can do. Mm. I mean, at the end of the day, charities can run hospitals. Um, Charities can run schools. Um, The private sector can build roads once government has given them the planning permission. The one thing only government can do is defend the nation. Mm. So uh, this is something that should never be neglected. And... uh, um, indicating uh, a determination to lift over the next few years defence spending, uh, military spending to 3% of GDP would be a good way of doing it. The other thing I think we need we need to do, Dan, is I think we need to start having a conversation about national service. Mm. Now, um, I don't think that we should be too dogmatic uh, about where the conversation might go and any form of national service uh, would have to have a civilian component saying to people who turn 18 or who leave school, uh, we expect you to spend a significant period of time, six months, 12 months, whatever, um, doing something for our country, giving something back, whether it's putting on the uniform uh, and becoming at least a basically trained uh, infantry soldier, uh, whether it's going to work in a remote Indigenous community, Um, to try to ensure that uh, the schools have got plenty of good role models uh, for young people, Um, whether it's maybe deploying as a kind of an Australian Peace Corps uh, to the South Pacific. There are all sorts of things which people could do, whether it's, you know, going to volunteer in a nursing home or something like that uh, for, uh, for a period of time. There are all sorts of things that I think we could very usefully talk about asking of our young people and you know we constantly talk about rights we constantly talk about what we're going to do for people yes uh, we have rights uh, and the government uh, has certain obligations to us which it should do its best to discharge but this is a two-way street Hmm. Uh, it's about giving as well as receiving. And I think we do have to talk more about what we can give back to our country. I think it's a fascinating insight and I think you and I should maybe talk about that a bit more over coming weeks and months because I think there's a lot a lot to that and I think there'd be a lot of interest in general public debate about this, this issue. I did want to turn to the last topic of our discussion today, which is also relevant to national defence, which is the issue of energy and energy security. Um, you can't have national security if you don't have energy security, if you don't have the ability to run heavy industry and sovereign manufacturing 24-7, then uh, you're not really going to be in a capacity to be able to defend yourself as a nation. And the most immediate issue or the most immediate, I guess, uh, public matter has been the concession by Labor that far from energy prices coming down, uh, they're going to go up in their budget forecasting at least uh, 55% over the next two years on top of already dramatic increases to electricity prices uh, due to this push for more renewables and the closure of coal-fired power. Uh, Tony, to begin with, can you give us your observations on the current state of play in our energy market and 
uh, what you make of it? Well, plainly, uh, the government's pre-election promise to cut $275 a year off the average household's power bill is never going to happen. Uh, as the budget papers uh, said, we can expect a 50% plus increase in power prices over the next 18 months to two years. And frankly, I think that is being optimistic. Uh, the basic problem is that in our rush to reduce emissions, now entrenched in law, uh, we are uh, closing down reliable coal fire power generation <coughs> with almost indecent haste. Uh, we are rushing to build uh, renewable generation to replace it. Uh, but the trouble is uh, uh, we are falling behind uh, in the race to renewables. And in any event, even if we did build the 40 new wind turbines a month and install the 22,000 solar panels a day that uh, Minister Bowen says we need, even if we did manage to build in just eight years uh, the 28,000 kilometres of new transmission lines that he uh, says we need, even if we did all that, you've still got to firm up the power when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine. And as I think I read in Peter Credlin's column uh, this morning, or oh, this week in The Australian, um, uh, Snowy 2.0 uh, will provide one-fourteenth of our current peak power uh, for a week hmm. in the absence of replenishment, and that is by far uh, the most substantial firming operation uh, that we have in the absence of the widespread availability of gas peaking power plants. And even the um, new plant that Snowy Hydro, under the former coalition government, uh, is building in the Hunter, is now apparently under this government uh, only going to be geared up for so-called green hydrogen. Now, I mean, look, we are we are racing headlong towards a cliff. Um, uh, we will start going over the cliff next year uh, uh, when the Liddell power station uh, fully closes. Uh, the cliff will get steeper uh, and more precipitous in 2025 when the biggest power station in the country, Araring, closes down, um, we, we simply are incapable, we are logistically incapable of getting enough firmed power into the system uh, to avoid blackouts um, or mandatory uh, load shedding, in other words, rationing. Um, yeah. We are simply incapable of... Uh, because of the, 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 the dimensions of the task, we are simply incapable of doing it in the timelines. So, so, so frankly, uh, the urgent task of policy is to ensure that none of these coal-fired power stations close prematurely, mm -hmm. uh, that they all stay open until we've got uh, reliable alternatives um, and there are no reliable alternatives currently in sight. I'd just like to have one more question on this, uh, sort of the political angle of it, which is we've seen here in Victoria, Daniel Andrews basically promising to renationalise a part of the energy infrastructure here. Depending on what happens in New South Wales election early next year, you could have wall-to-wall -wall Labor governments in the mainland, uh, Western Australia is not on the national energy market, so that's a bit different, but all the other states are. 
Um, is my, my thinking here is they're going to push for the renationalization of part or if not whole all of our energy infrastructure and basically in, implement heavy subsidization of consumer bills to say, look, bills did go down, ignoring the fact that all those costs are pushed onto the taxpayer, you're going to have to pay for it anyway. Um, what's your reading of, of where this might go? Look, the problem is not who owns the generation. The problem is that there's not enough reliable generation. That's yeah. the problem. And uh, yes, uh, Daniel Andrews is wanting people to think that he's renationalizing the power system uh, because people have a memory uh, of cheap, reliable power uh, back in the days when brown coal was king. Uh, now, the fact is, uh, um, for at least a couple of decades uh, after Jeff Kennett privatised the power here in Victoria, um, reliability uh, and affordability increased. So privatisation has not been the problem. Uh, the problem has been all of these uh, market interferences, essentially because for at least the last um, decade, um, with the exception of the Abbott period, uh, our power system was run not with the goal of providing affordable and reliable power, giving us energy security, giving us uh, making us an affordable energy superpower. It was run to reduce emissions. Uh, and that's the problem. We've been running it to reduce emissions, not to give us a reliable, affordable power supply. So, so what we need is more 24-7 power in the system. Uh, that means uh, gas, it means coal, um, it means hydro, where you've got uh, the kind of regular rainfall mm. that they have in Tassie, but not too many other places in Australia. And down the track, um, it should mean nuclear, uh, but starting a nuclear industry in this country is the work of five or ten years. It's not something that could happen overnight. But we can keep the existing coal fire stations uh, going. Uh, we can we can get more gas exploration and extraction going. Uh, we can rapidly build uh, gas peaking plants, and we should. Um, and frankly, I think we do need to build uh, uh, one or two new uh, coal-fired power stations. And that shouldn't be too scary mm -hmm. to the people who are very uh, emissions conscious because the most modern coal-fired power stations uh, uh, operate at about 40% less emissions intensity than the old ones that we've been relying on for the last 30 or 40 years. No, that's right, uh, Tony, and I think we'll have to leave it there today. You're a busy man. I know you've got some other engagements, so we greatly appreciate your time as always and your insights and analysis and advice and uh, looking forward to continuing our conversations over the coming weeks and months. Dan, great to talk as always. This is a production of the Centre for the Australian Way of Life at the Institute of Public Affairs. To find out more, visit australia.ipa.org.au.